All right, the uh, first two matters are cases arising out of the same suit in the district court brought by the uh, state of Maryland and the District of Columbia against the president uh, under the emoluments clauses. And in case many of you are not familiar with the Constitution, the first emoluments clause is the foreign one, which says, no officer without consent of Congress shall accept any present or emolument from any king, prince, or foreign state. And the second emolument clause is the domestic one in Article three, uh, 2, says the president shall receive compensation for his services and shall not, during his term of office, receive any other emolument from the United States or any state. And so those clauses are the subject of the suit, and the first matter <clears throat> is a mandamus uh, petition filed against, filed by the president uh, in connection with his, the claims against him in his official capacity, and the next matter we'll hear is uh, the claims against the president in his uh, uh, individual capacity. So uh, we'll hear from uh, Mr. Maupin for the president, for the, yes. May it please the court. There are multiple fundamental defects in this extraordinary suit that warrant mandamus relief. I'd like to begin this morning with the most serious of them, namely that there is no authority to sue directly the president of the United States in his official capacity. Now it is undisputed that there is no express cause of action either in the constitution or provided by Congress. What plaintiffs instead argue is that they have an implied cause of action in equity. Now, the Supreme Court made clear in Armstrong that the implied cause of action in equity against federal officials is only appropriate in some circumstances in a proper case. And what the Supreme Court made clear in Grupo Mexicano is that equity... Are you saying that the president can't be named as a defendant in a suit while he's in office? Not in an official capacity suit, Your Honor, and more precisely, certainly not without Congress having expressly authorized it. So the question in the case is whether there's an implied cause of action in equity. And what Grupo Mexicano makes clear is that the equitable jurisdiction of the federal courts is limited to the traditional forms of equity relief. And if the, a certain type of equity relief is not traditionally authorized, then Congress must expressly authorize it. That Grupo Mexicano lays this out in great detail and is perfectly consistent with what the Supreme Court later said in the Abbasi decision, where they explained that the recognition of a cause of action, the recognition of the right to sue, is a quintessentially legislative prerogative, and it asserts the separation of powers for the courts to recognize a cause of action that Congress has not provided. So now the question in this case becomes, is there a tradition of equitable relief against the president himself in his official capacity? Plaintiffs have certainly identified so, no such history and no such history exists. To the contrary, on the handful of times where someone has tried to sue the president in his official capacity and the, and the question has reached the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has roundly rejected it in both- The district court said though, if I read him correctly, and I think I did, he's concerned about a president run amok violating the emoluments clause left and right, and somebody has to be there to hold him accountable. How do, and, under your view, how is that possible? Well, again, Your Honor, the first question is whether Congress has authorized a cause of action. This is a quintessential legislative judgment 
about whether to authorize suit. And if but I didn't ask you that. But I said, what do you do then? Where's the check on the president? Right. So again, just as in, for example, in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the same argument was made there, that if you don't recognize a damages action against the president, the president will be above the law. And what the Supreme Court said is that the president is unique in the executive branch. He's entitled to immunity. So are you suggesting there's no check on the president? I'm suggesting at a minimum that there, the checks that have to exist would have to come from Congress. If, so in other words, Congress would check him. Uh, Congress could provide a cause of action, and then we would have to address the difficult constitutional question that has been presented in cases like Mississippi and Franklin, whether Congress would, can do that or whether it violates the separation of powers. Would Congress, would Congress have to create a cause of action? Could Congress not just take action under the emoluments clause, Mr. President? Well, I don't think that Congress could sue the president. I didn't ask you that. But, but I didn't ask Congress, you that. of course, could exercise all sorts of forms of oversight with respect to the president. The Congress has other remedies. The question is whether there is a judicial remedy here for private parties or in but this case. But that's not what I ask you. That's what you want to talk about. But I said if there's not that right of cause of action, is there a check on the president? And you say there is by other steps Congress could take. That's right. Is there anything in the structure of that language that makes you think Congress is the appropriate body to do that checking? Well, certainly for the Foreign Emoluments Clause, the authority of Congress to consent gives some suggestion of it. But I think the bigger point, the one that applies to both the Foreign and the Domestic Emoluments Clause, is a greater structural point. It's the point that the court made in Nixon versus Fitzgerald and in Franklin and all the other cases, which is that the president is unique in our constitutional structure. The, all of the Article II executive power is vested in him uniquely, and at a minimum, before he can be subjected to suit, Congress should have to expressly authorize that. Assume, assume you're right on, on the calls of action, just for the sake of this discussion. We're, we're here on a mandamus, and in particular, you're asking for a mandamus to um, certify a question under 1292. Um, as best I can tell, you know, in, in Cheney, we had a decision where there was, you know, by the court's description, overbroad discovery. In the NRA U.S. case from the Ninth Circuit, when we're dealing with certification, they actually declined mandamus because no discovery has been sent here. We got some discovery here, but it's third-party discovery. Are we at a point where we are at a crisis, even under your view, before any discovery has even been, you know, propounded against the president? Yes, Your Honor. If you agree with us that the president is not subject to suit, then I think that the easiest uh, path to mandamus in this case is just directly to mandamus the denial of the motion to dismiss. It's no different than what this court did in the Henry Sewell decision. In Sewell, uh, the mandamus was granted in a district court against district court action that shouldn't have been in district court because it should have been an administrative agency. But, but to do that, we have to decide there's a... <coughs> clear and unrefutable right on those issues. And I understand your arguments, but that's what we'd have to define. Really, there's no way to even look at the other side of that point. You agree with I that? I agree with that, Your Honor. And I do think that on the question of whether the president is subject to suit, the fact that Franklin and Mississippi both squarely say as a general matter the president's not subject to suit in his official capacity, clearly an indisputably established proposition, as do Grupo Mexicano and Abbasi, both of which emphasize, again, we're not asking this court to say it would be unconstitutional to, uh, for Congress to subject the president to suit. All we're saying is that at a minimum, they cannot infer an equitable cause of action 
in the absence of any history of such but, a suit, but, but, and, and given and, the serious separation of powers concern that suit presents. But, but, but given the, the, the mandamus issue, I mean, I, I understand the position there, but, but the real issue I think you are asserting is there becomes a separation of powers issue. And the, the point you talked about can be raised at any point. I mean, there are cases all the time that get litigated where there's one side thinks there's no cause of action. This really, and I realize we're dealing with a, 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 an argument on separation of powers, but doesn't the issue really collide once there's discovery or action taken? Why do we not have to have some event like that? So, Your Honor, again, I don't think that that's consistent with this court's precedent in Sewell. Again, in Sewell, the issue was not that there was going to be discovery in the district court action. Right. The issue was that the case should not have been in district court at all because it belonged in the uh, jurisdiction of an administrative agency. And I would submit that the jurisdictional class there pales in comparison to the jurisdictional class here of subjecting the President of the United States to a lawsuit when he should not be subject to one. Is that because the, uh, uh, of the status of the President as President, or is it because the emoluments clauses don't create a cause of action? It, it's the status of the President as President. Both in Cheney and in Clinton versus Jones, the Supreme Court made clear that the the respect due for the high office of the president is something that affects the conduct of the entire proceedings. The entire proceedings. At a minimum, that should mean that if the president has a clear and indisputable right not to be sued, he's entitled to immediate dismissal. And if a district court fails to dismiss when it should have, but what do you but what do you make of the of the of the claim that there is a cause of action under the emoluments clause? You don't believe that, do you? We do not, Your Honor. Again, nothing. I know this is separate and apart from your claim. Whether it's there or not, it can't be against the president unless it's expressed or very clear. But a good question, I think, from Judge Niemeyer. You've thrown away the second part of that? Or is you just not addressing it because it's not your main point? It, you know, we certainly agree that even separate and apart from the president, it wouldn't be appropriate to infer a cause of action under the uh, emoluments clauses generally, and certainly not for these particular plaintiffs. But we do think these cleanest... Well, does anybody under the foreign uh, clause... Uh, it applies to any officer. And uh, the question is, could a state bring a suit against the Secretary of State uh, for accepting an emolument? Right. And we don't think so, Your Honor. And what we would, there are a couple of reasons we would say, certainly not these plaintiffs. Again, even if you assume that there's, if this isn't about the president, if it's just any old officer such that they can say, invoke Armstrong, which provides a general cause of action in equity against federal officers. The Supreme Court has made clear in cases like Lexmark and Bennett that the plaintiff has to fall within the protected interests of the, that cause of action. And the Supreme Court has made clear in Clark that if you're invoking an implied cause of action, that it's a particularly rigorous standard. Here, there's no dispute that the point of the emoluments clauses, the purpose that they are intended to serve, is to protect against the corrupting influence on official action. And by and large, those are not the interests that they seek to vindicate. What about there, the fact that some discovery has been ordered? What do you make of that as part of your argument? Well, we certainly think that the fact that discovery is proceeding against, in, in a suit in a, against the president's official capacity is part of the reason why we are here on mandamus. Why I know it's, it's, that, it's that, but does that add to your argument? It seems to me there is a claim that a district court judge, and we all used to be that, that a district court judge has a great deal of discretion. And sometimes a district, oftentimes a district court judge, not the three of us, but others will make mistakes. And when, <laughs> when that happens, you don't get an immediate appeal, generally. You wait until something else happens. But I kind of thought that maybe there was an argument that you would make that the mistake on allowing the suit to go forward, which you've already talked about, 
plus then action, which is this discovery, which is not any small matter, as I've read what they've requested. I thought that would be something that would add to the impetus to take the decision on at this point. I, I agree, Your Honor. I do think that the— But I didn't so much want you to agree. I was the, asking, the, is the that what you— Yes, as we argued in our briefs, the existence of the discovery underscores the importance of why this court should exercise mandamus relief right now, but I do want to emphasize that it is not necessary to our argument. As we discussed in Sewell, the question was the mandamus was granted even wholly apart from discovery because of the improper nature but of the that But the point suit. being that the mandamus, which is a rare remedy to be granted, correct? Yes, but that, if you look at it for it's not just a judge's decision, but it's a judge's decision basically emboldened with action, which is now the point. He's not only, in your eyes, made a wrong decision, but he's now acting under that decision in a way that creates what you call a tremendous burden on you. That's so correct. So putting those two together might in some way assuage the concerns about mandamus. That's correct, Your Honor. If I can uh, complete the answer to Judge Niemeyer's question about uh, why these plaintiffs can't sue, so, the, as I was saying, the Emoluments Clause is intended to protect against the corruption of official action. The injuries that these plaintiffs are asserting almost entirely have nothing to do with that corruption of official action. What they are complaining about is that they are suffering, either they or their citizens are suffering competitive injury, i.e., not that the emoluments are going to corrupt the president's official actions. Instead, what they're complaining about is that they want to compete with the president to receive emoluments from foreign and domestic governments. There is simply no support for in the history of the I suspect clause. they'd be willing to admit their complaint to add corruption if you insisted on it. Well, but they are not challenging. They are not saying that their injury flows from the corruption of official action. They have not identified any third party who is providing the president with emoluments that is going to corrupt his actions in a way that injures them. That's simply not the claims that they've asserted. It's, they have no factual basis for it. Take, for example, the only example, and it wasn't even in their complaint, the district court, and they added a post-complaint in their briefs, of a situation where a so-called other state competitor is giving the president what they would allege to be emoluments in a way that could injure them. It's the example they have is the governor of Maine stayed at the hotel and sometime afterwards, the president took certain actions with respect to a main national park. They have no argument for how that national park in any way injures them. They just have no allegation of the type that even within the remote ballpark of what the, uh, the Monuments Clause was intended to deal with, which is uh, protection against corruption of official action. Well, I, I suppose if, I don't know, and I'll be asking them, uh, what kind of relief they want, but if they had relief in which the president was, say, removed from his businesses or put it into a blind trust or somehow disengaged from his private enterprises, uh, in such a circumstance, there would still be the hotel there called the Trump Hotel. And the question is, it's still a competitor and probably would still affect the competitive injury they're claiming uh, to the uh, convention center in Montgomery County. So that is true as well, and that's part of the reason why they don't even satisfy the bare minimum of Article Three standing, because even their competitor injuries are inherently speculative for many well, reasons. That's the only injury that the district court relied on, really, uh, a little bit of the sovereign. Uh, they, so, I'm not I'm sure I understand the sovereign in, uh, injury, but uh, the injury they are alleging is this competitive injury. Right, and I agree that the competitive injury is speculative for multiple reasons, including the one Your Honor just identified, which is they themselves, the, all of their arguments about how foreign governments want to curry favor with the president. There's simply no reason to think that that is limited to his financial interest. 
their own amici say things like foreign governments will seek every advantage incurring favor with the president. So the idea that if the hotel was instead owned by his family or what he he personally didn't have a financial interest, the idea that that would affect any of these decisions in a way that would injure them is inherently too speculative, let alone in a case against the president of the United States. I suppose the argument is that the uh, uh, foreign persons uh, staying at the hotel go there because the president owns it and they want to be providing him with financial benefit uh, to show favor. So uh, that that's, is, their, that's their argument. That is their argument, but it's doubly speculative. It's first of all it's speculative that any of those people would not stay there if it wasn't going to give him financial benefit, but instead his family. It's also speculative whether they would have stayed at one of plaintiffs' properties if they didn't say. Yeah, but that's that, why they want discovery. I think. Well, you they don't plan get to, to get into that motivation. I suspect they do, but you don't get to skip over the threshold requirement of adequately pleading standing to get discovery to show that you have standing. They have to adequately plead at the outset that they have a non-speculative injury, and they simply cannot. Meet go, that. go back to the the issue you started with um, about the ability <coughs> to sue the president in official capacity. How does um, Clinton versus New York square with that right. with that argument? So Clinton versus New York, the, the case uh, about the line on veto. Right. So the the court didn't address the question about whether the president himself was subject to suit in that case. And if there is a footnote in the case that makes clear there were other defendants besides the president who were sued in that case. Yeah, but but it was a suit against the president that proceeded, and there was a declaration at the end that the you know that the, the reversal of the payments to the New York um, hospitals, I think, um, had, to be re- had to be reversed. And, 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 I mean, there was no holding that the president couldn't be sued in that respect, correct? Right. I think it's a drive-by on this issue, Your Honor. Okay. Just, the court is recognized in cases like Steel Co. Unless the court squarely addresses the question, you shouldn't treat it as a holding on a, a question like whether the president can be subject to suit. You shouldn't read Clinton to implicitly overrule the decision just five or six years earlier in Franklin versus Massachusetts, which reaffirmed the rule of Mississippi versus Johnson, that as a general matter, the president is not subject to suit for his official duties. Doesn't that, do you believe that um, the um, Franklin case leaves the possibility of a um, claim against the president for relief that's ministerial in nature? So I think both Franklin and Mississippi do hold open the question of whether truly ministerial action could be subject to relief. But I think what's important is Mississippi itself makes clear that this is not subject to peace ministerial within the meaning of uh, Mississippi is something that leaves no discretion and no judgment. It's a finite action. Clearly, whether he is complying with the Emoluments Clause does not meet that. If any further doubt is recognized about that, just look at the lengthy opinion from the district court analyzing the question. There's no way anyone can credibly argue that there's this is a specific duty of which there's no dispute. What they argue is that, of course, he can't violate the Emoluments Clause, so he's got a duty. But so, too, in Mississippi, of course, President Johnson couldn't have violated the Constitution. The claim there was that the act of Congress that he was enforcing was unconstitutional. The question isn't whether you can vi- whether you have a duty not to not violate the Constitution. Of course you don't. The question is whether it's clear and indisputable that what the conduct at issue is a violation of the Constitution, such that the court could say it is purely ministerial. Of course you have to do it. And this case certainly does not meet that high standard. It sounds like you, in the briefs, the impression I got was that the um, president's primary argument was that we should uh, grant the writ to um, certify, to order that the certification take place. It sounds today like you're 
maybe reversing that and suggesting dismissal is the is what you're seeking. Your Honor, we think that there are multiple fundamental defects in this case, and mandamus could be provided through either route. We do think that the simplest uh, path for this court to adopt is to say that it's clear and indisputable that the president is subject to an implied equitable action, and that under Sewell, that warrants mandamus relief uh, against the motion to dismiss. On the um, equitable action, do you understand that to be constrained uh, uh, to the same structure that Ex parte Young is? In other words, Ex parte Young uh, seeks to enjoin a defense to something that otherwise could be brought by the government. And uh, uh, this is sort of an open-ended equitable action, just saying, basically, uh, I'm enjoining you. I want an injunction to enforce the Constitution against the president. So we agree that this is the sort of action as ex parte young. We also agree with your honor that the traditional type of ex parte young action is the sort that you would refer to where it's a preemptive assertion of defense. The reason why that is the traditional form is precisely because it doesn't present the serious separation of powers concerns. It is the sort of situation where the lawsuit was always going to be in federal court and you're just affecting the timing and posture of the case. When as here, you instead are bringing an affirmative enforcement action there are much graver separation of powers concerns. Now, we're not saying that there's a blanket ban on bringing affirmative enforcement suits. They are right that there are cases that have recognized such suits. But what we are saying is it's got to be the type of suit that has been recognized in equity. And in this circumstance, both given the type of defendant, namely the President of the United States, and the type of plaintiffs, namely states that are not within the zone of protected interest of the Emoluments Clause, certainly this is not the type of action that you could bring. It seems to me law. you'd have to include in that formula in order to distinguish it from other equitable actions uh, the fact that the clauses don't create causes of action. They do not have persons uh, identified as being protected and uh, that, suggesting some kind of an implicit That's right, Your Honor. I think the threshold argument you can make that could apply to the entire cause of action would be to say that the traditional ex parte young type cases, even the affirmative cases, always involve suits where plaintiffs are arguing that the defendants <laughs> are infringing on their personal property or liberty interests under the Constitution. And for example, in ex parte young, the argument was that the state statute was violated due process in regulating the, the railroad in that case. They are not arguing here that the Emoluments Clauses confer a personal right, or they cannot argue here, that the Emoluments Clauses confer a personal right with respect to their property here. Because what they're challenging is not their property rights. What they're challenging is how the president is engaging in commercial business transactions, and then they're simply complaining about what they perceive to be the indirect economic effects of that on them or their citizens. I'm not aware of any type of ex parte young action that has that aspect. And again, under Grupo Mexicano, for there to be an implied equitable cause of action, they bear the burden of showing that that type of suit would have been recognized as a traditional equitable remedy. And there simply isn't any support for that. Well, let me, let me go to an issue of redressability. Um, it, it, it seems to me um, this suits the suit in the president's official capacity. Is there any, um, anything the president can do under the plaintiff's definition of emolument in his official capacity to redress their concerns? So I think it is right to say that the only thing he could do, quote, in his official capacity to redress their concerns would be to resign office. Uh, the other thing they can do, he could do, obviously, is divest the financial interest of which they're objecting. 
that, that I would resist the suggestion that that is not official. To be sure, it involves his personal financial assets. But their entire claim, this is not a case like Clinton uh, versus Jones, where the claim against the president was entirely unrelated to his holding the office of the presidency. Here, what they are arguing is because he holds the office of the presidency, right. there are constraints on his personal business interests. And so I would submit that what he does in response to that is very much part of his official duties. And, and they certainly think that, don't they? Because they, they filed do. the official suit basically asking for what has to be divestment. They certainly do. If they think that that is not at all official capacity, then the suit against the president's official capacity should, of course, be dismissed for that reason alone. And since they themselves are trying to dismiss the individual capacity suit, this case should be over. I, I would have thought you had argued that because the relief of divestment is individual in nature, it's relief that cannot be obtained in an official capacity suit. Your Honor, I think given the, the Emoluments Clause is this a weird hybrid where sure. it's because of your official capacity, there are constraints on your personal conduct. I don't, we haven't made the, for that reason, we haven't made the argument that no relief is available if there were otherwise a cause of action. If, for example, Congress had provided an express cause of action against an inferior officer for violating the Emoluments Clause and there were a plaintiff who fell within the zone of interest to show a merits claim, I don't think, we haven't argued that in those circumstances. You couldn't provide a remedy, but we every single step of what I just said is not satisfied here. There isn't a cause of action. It is against the president, and the plaintiffs are not within the zone of interests. All right. Thank you, uh, Mr. Mopin. You have some rebuttal. Uh, Ms. Alikhan. Good morning, and may it please the court. Lauren Alikhan for the respondents. The president is asking for two forms of extraordinary relief. First and foremost, he's asking that this court use 1292B, or use the right of mandamus, to require certification of the district court's orders under 1292B. And every court to have expressly considered that question has found mandamus to be an inappropriate vehicle. And that is because Congress has laid the first line of discretion with the district court in determining whether or not to certify an order for 1292B. You can't, you can't imagine any situation in which it would be appropriate. So I believe that mandamus could be appropriate if the district court failed to conduct the 1292B analysis. But I think following from this court's case in In Re Pisca, where the court has conducted the 1292B analysis and found that certification is inappropriate, this court is without appellate jurisdiction because 1292B is a limited exception to the Let final judgment Let me ask you a rule. situation, though. What if it's just a hypothetical? Everybody but the judge realizes he's got the law wrong on that point. Everybody realizes that. And then he also orders some other action that's crushing or very, very burdensome on the other party. Uh, and then he undertakes that analysis and goes, I'm not certifying. That wouldn't allow for mandamus? So I think that's the situation that you see in Cheney, where what was mandamus was the discovery. But order. I'm asking you about my hypothetical. You say even if everybody in the world but the judge knew he was wrong on the law, he had it absolutely wrong. It undertook the certification, got that wrong, but did it, as you said, and he also orders what is a crushing burden on the other party. That's just the way it is. So I think under 1292B, yes. When Congress was considering 1292B, it considered a proposal where the Court of Appeals had the only discretion as to whether or not a question should be certified and expressly rejected that. What would be the relief in my hypothetical? The then? relief in your hypothetical would be to seek mandamus from the underlying order. I think the discovery order, as it was in Well, they have here. They've sought uh, mandamus directly on the refusal to dismiss. So they have and, sought mandamus, yes, directly. And it on seems the to me the... Uh, uh, yeah, 
you may have a good point on 1292B, but uh, they have two prongs to their mandamus petition, and uh, the, uh, the prong which they've emphasized today is a direct review of the refusal to dismiss the claim. Absolutely. So they can seek mandamus, but in order to be entitled to it, they have to have a clear and indisputable right to relief. Well, they claim it's clear. They claim you can't sue the president in these circumstances. And we dispute that as the district court agreed with us. Well, let's hear about that. So, I mean, in Clinton versus Jones, the court, uh, the Supreme Court said that the court has long held that when the president takes official action, the court has the ability to determine whether he acted within the law. And Armstrong, in a long series of cases, hold that the, the courts have <clears throat> equitable jurisdiction to enjoin What was the official action you're challenging? The official action is the acceptance of emoluments, which is in violation of the Constitution. The Constitution what, what act did he take? He, I, I thought he pulled back from the management. He has his son <laughs> managing the hotel. And uh, he gets reports every quarter, but uh, uh, he's not taking an official action. He, the argument is his simply passively holding that interest is a violation of the uh, two emoluments clauses. But uh, 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 it's, it seems to me you ought to be addressing uh, the question of the, whether the president's violation of the emoluments clauses uh, gives right to anyone to sue the president uh, uh, while in office. So the president has chosen to keep his business holdings while in office, thereby having an entity through which individuals or governments can tender emoluments and then he can accept them. By having that ownership stake in the Trump International Hotel, he has a place where the emoluments can be accepted. So yes, he has stepped back, but he has not divested. He has not put the assets in a blank What is trust. the remedy you want in this case? So we have sought both declaratory and injunctive relief. I know the declaratory, but what, what, is the, what do you want enjoined? How would you describe the order? So I think it would depend on the circumstances at the end of the case. I think divestment could be an appropriate injunction. However, I think declaratory relief would also could be a complete remedy. You've asked for injunctive relief. Are you giving that up? No, not at all. I'm well, then we I'm asking for you for the form of relief you're requesting. And I believe that it would depend on the circumstances of the case. However, I think divestment is, uh, could be a proper injunctive relief. How could there be anything other than divestment? There would still be a violation of emoluments absent divestment, wouldn't there? So I say divestment is a possible injunctive relief. I know that. I'm asking you how could there be anything else you were seeking? Because under your view of emoluments, anything short of divestment still creates an emolument. I think that could be correct. Not how, could be. It is. I'm saying, though, that a declaration and then allowing the, the president to figure out how to comply Look, with that declaration may be sufficient relief. Don't fall back on the declaration when we're asking you about the injunctive relief unless you're going to give up injunctive relief. The, we understand you're seeking de declaratory judgment, but the question is, what kind of injunctive relief would you request? Are you requesting? We have requested injunctive relief as the court deems appropriate based on the facts of the case what do as you it develops. Do, as you see the facts now, you allege them. What other than divestment do you think is appropriate? So as I stand here today, divestment does seem like the appropriate remedy. Is there anything else that solves the concerns you have? I mean, we do believe, I know you were talking about injunctive relief, but we think a declaration could be very I know powerful that. We at remedying got that. our injury. We got that. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But as far as the injunctive relief, if I understand your, your argument, understand your filing and your brief, I don't think anything short of divestment would answer your concern. So I think divestment could, perhaps a blind trust. And I think we have Well, how here, would a blind trust do that? He would still benefit from that, though. He would benefit from foreign dignitaries going to his hotel, and he would know it. Ride by in his motorcade, and you see his estate going in, he would know it. 
You think a blind trust solves the emoluments clause as you are contending it? Again, as I stand here today, it is hard to say what at the end of the case it might look like. It's not hard to say. A blind trust is, everybody understands that. And the argument would be, he would make the argument, I'm holding it in a blind trust. The, your argument would be that notwithstanding the blind trust, he's still receiving emoluments in violation of the clauses, right? So, yes, I think our first line position... All right, position, then why don't you get back to Judge Shedd's question, is other than divestment, is there any other form of relief you could be or would be asking for? So, yes, I think divestment. I also think that a declaration could be powerful. And I think that federal officials over time have put their assets in blind trust at the direction of federal officials. And so but I do think you think a blind trust would be sufficient in this case? In your theory of emolument, do you think a blind trust would be sufficient? I think you? that it depends on the facts on the ground. We don't have discovery. The facts on the ground are it's a blind trust. He takes everything he owns and puts it in a trust to be managed by somebody else. And he's removed from it while he's president. You think that solves your emolument concern? At this stage, I'm not willing to concede that it wouldn't. So I do think divestment is the cleanest option. A declaration is also sufficient. Well, just work through your theory, though. Work through your theory. Don't you have a concern that those hotels and other things, in fact, is I think you even want them fired from The Apprentice, don't you? Didn't you ask for that? I don't believe so. Is I the think you did. Still yes, on? you did. You huh. certainly did. You asked that he get rid of The Apprentice. So yeah. you want him fired from The Apprentice, too. But at any rate, but at any rate, if he puts stuff in a blind trust, he's still going to benefit from what foreign dignitaries or whoever you say would be prohibited would do for that trust while he's president. I leave open the option of a blind trust because that is what federal officials historically have done at the Council of Federal Ethics You know, officials. you don't seem to be wanting to answer the question. The question is a fairly simple one. Does that solve the problem under your theory of the Emoluments Clause? The Emoluments Clause prohibits the receipt of emoluments from a king, a prince, or a foreign state, at least as to the foreign one. Now, if the king uh, or the prince stays at the hotel and pays the hotel the fees, giving profits to the hotel, that goes into the blind trust, right? Yes. All right. Now, does that violate the Emoluments Clause under your theory? In our view... If it is a yes or no, it may, it very well may. So let's presume that divestment is the option. So we've asked the court to entertain equitable relief as he deems appropriate based on the facts at the end of the case. Some of that will be informed by discovery. I know you're missing the point, though. But if everything goes the way you want it to, what would be the relief you would find appropriate to solve your emoluments concern other than complete divestment? Can you name one? A declaration. To not well, I know the, the declaration is different. And By the way, do you think if you got a declaration, you would want a declaration of the uh, violation of the emoluments clause? A declaration that he's violating the emoluments clause would be very powerful. Do you powerful. think that would be the basis for a high crime and misdemeanor for impeachment, that declaration? I don't believe so. I think a declaration that what he's okay. doing is, is violating the emoluments clause and an injunction to not do so, and then we can but you don't stage, even know you don't even know you filed the lawsuit and you don't even know what relief real actual real world relief you think would satisfy your claim of violation I believe it depends on the circumstances of how he's violating the law It doesn't depend clauses, it depends on what you're asking for every lawsuit asks for a remedy and you have shaped your lawsuit and you seem to be 
ducking the question. You're asking for injunctive relief, and we're asking you, what is the relief you're asking for? And, and you know the facts. You've alleged facts over a long complaint. You have a theory of the case. And uh, basically what I'm taking from this argument is that your form of relief would be an injunction requiring the president to, device, to divest himself of all his assets. We believe that is an option, yes. We believe that an is- option. Are you requesting it? We have requested the district court to enter the relief that he deems appropriate. What, the I cannot district court's say- going to make this up? Based on the facts, if we establish he is violating the emoluments clauses in particular facets, let's the assume can be he has to that. these interests that you have alleged, and he's receiving profits from states and heads of states in all his various hotels and through all kinds of uh, business entities. He's receiving these things. Yes, now, def- those are the facts you're alleging. The question is, what relief do you want? This is your lawsuit. It is indeed, and our relief, the relief we sought in our complaint. Is a declaration an injunctive relief as appropriate? Standing here today, divestment, divestment could be that relief. Absolutely. What? If he is violating the emoluments clauses and he is told to stop doing so and a divestment from the Trump International so Hotel. So you you're going to stand before the district court and say, do what you think is appropriate? And, and uh, after he declares this is a violation of the law and you stand there and you say, do what's appropriate. And he says, what do you want? Would, and you said, oh, do what the facts show. There would be briefing about what would be the appropriate remedy. But I don't would, think this would court you, needs Would you to, be satisfied with the prohibition of anybody who could possibly be associated with a foreign government doing any business with Trump? That he, he wouldn't have to divest. But when I say Trump, I meant the Trump holdings. Would, would you be satisfied with the prohibition issued that no person in association in any way with the foreign government could ever be involved with or stay at a Trump property. Would that suit you? I think it depends on the way it's worded. The, the president, I just worded it. I so just worded it. The president is the one who's violating the Constitution. No, no, I, I'm saying would that be, would you be satisfied? Would that take away the emolument yes. issue? So an injunction preventing him from accepting foreign and domestic government business may very well be an option. So you would be, that might satisfy you that at the Trump businesses, nobody who is associated with the foreign government, funded by them, or maybe appears to be associated with them, could stay at his businesses. And I think that follows from an injunction not to violate the emoluments clauses. And so let me just get this straight. So if he then said, a little reminiscent of the travel ban, no foreigners can stay in any of my properties, how long before the state of Maryland sue him for discrimination? So it's not that no foreigners, it's no foreign governments. The domestic I know, but he might take the stand that I can't, I don't know about foreign. How he chooses to comply with a declaration that he's violating the Constitution. So what you want to do, though, is make it a guessing game for him. I I do not want it to be a guessing game, Judge Shedd. What I would like it to be is at the remedial stage, we can determine. I know that, but you should know what you, I've read and I've tried to figure through. Let me ask this. Do you agree with the district court's definition of emolument? He says even a fair market transaction is still an emolument because in that fair market value, the hotel still makes some profit. Do you agree with that? That is correct. Emolument is any profit gain or advantage. And even in a market transaction, he is getting a profit that would otherwise go to either our business or those of ours. So then would you be satisfied if the Trump Hotel gave a break to foreign associated people so they paid less than Americans to knock that? Profit margin out, would that take care of the problem? 
No, I don't think it would because the Why? Then that would eliminate that part of his profit. I mean, respectfully, I think this just shows why talking about the specifics of a particular injunctive remedy is premature at this stage. It's not at all. It's not at all because I've never, I think one of the most important things is for a lawyer to know what remedy a lawyer wants before you engage in litigation. It also goes to redressability. And the real question is, what, how is your claim redressable? Our claim is redressable because looking at, for example, the Friends Patriot and competitor standing, we are suffering and our resident properties are suffering a competitive disadvantage by virtue of the skewed market. Because All right, so, so the, we order, according <coughs> to your request, we ordered the president to divest himself of his interest in the hotel uh, in Washington. That's the one at issue. Uh, and he, in fact, uh, conveys his interest to his family. And they run the hotel. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. all the foreign heads of state and all the governors around the country, they stay at the hotel. Uh, how does that affect uh, your redressability interest? You have the very same problem. So respectfully, that presumes there are only two classes of economic actors, those that will always stay at the hotel and those that will not. That's not the, that requires some speculation. We knew no. The whole thing requires speculation. That, that may are. be one of the problems here. I mean, the question is Maryland is saying the state of Maryland is injured because the president is taking an emolument at the hotel. That's what the state of Maryland is saying. And, and the way you argue it and develop it is to say the people staying at the hotel might otherwise stay at Montgomery Convention Center. Uh, or have a, a place at the Montgomery uh, in, in Maryland, and therefore, or or uh, harbor uh, the harbor. <coughs> or they may host their events at the Washington Convention Center, or they may have them at the hotels in the district. I know, I understand, but but and the point is, Maryland is suggesting that that would happen, uh, that they would go there if the president didn't have his interest in that hotel. And we know that to be the case because we've had, and we allege in our complaint. I believe it's Kuwait, Bahrain, have moved from non-Trump properties to the Trump International Hotel by virtue of the fact that he is president. All right, so, so you don't are... think they would still go there with his son running it? Well, I think under the redressability cases in competitor standing, what we have to show is that it will level the playing field. It will take the unconstitutional emolument out. And then the rational economic actors can make the choices of where to stay based on the normal competitive factors. We do know that there are governments that have held events at our properties and at properties under our friends KTRI, um, you know, before and then have moved that business to the Trump International Hotel. So that does show that his status as the owner of the hotel, his status as president, is a driving factor. What's so, the, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what's your authority that allows you to bring a suit against the president in his official capacity that can be remedied only by divestiture or other acts taken in an individual capacity. So this is an interesting point and one that DOJ and us agree on. As they stated in their statement of interest in the individual capacity action, the clauses apply to the president because he is president. I understand that's your position. What's the authority? Assume that, assume I were to conclude, <coughs> the court were to conclude that the conduct that you're say, saying relieves the wrong that you say exists is individual conduct. What's the authority that allows someone to sue the president or any officer in their official capacity and obtain relief that can only be accomplished individually? So the relief isn't accomplished individually. Assume, assume we think it is. Is there any authority that allows you that, that allows one to um, obtain relief from an individual capacity by a case brought in the official capacity? 
So no, but that's because this is not individual relief we're seeking. And DOJ agrees on this point. The I understand that position. Apply because he is president. It gets at the conduct, both his public and private conduct, by virtue of his status as president. So in that way, an injunction requiring him to stop accepting emoluments is getting at his official conduct. And so I, I don't think there's any dispute about this between the parties, that that injunctive relief, even if it gets a private conduct, is something that because the prohibition is because he is president, is within this court's hand. Is there anything, is there any case, in reviewing the cases that, that, that y'all cited in all your briefs, it seemed like all the cases involved some action um, taken as president or um, that, that, that um, was the subject of the claim. And, and, I, and I understand your argument now. Your, your position is the acceptance of the monuments is the government action that you're complaining about? So I think this is like Larson and Dugan. He is violating the Constitution by virtue of being an official, but he's doing so in an ultra-virus way. As president, he's not allowed to accept emoluments. So therefore, if he is held to the terms of those constitutional provisions, if there's a declaration that he's violating them, an injunction to stop, then he has to order his affairs consistent with that. Does and the, that would then bring him within Larson and in Dugan back into the vein of his practice as president. Your definition is the same for the domestic and the foreign clause, correct? Yes. The word emolument, as we see from the founding fathers through current OLC and comptroller general opinions, is that it gets at a wide swath of Does ownership of a treasury advantage. bill violate the domestic emoluments clause? So I do not believe that it does because it is something that is without discretion. It's a mere, it's, it's, it's something that... One does not get any particular profit or gain. We get security uh, in an investment. Does a federally insured bank account violate the domestic um, emoluments clause? So these are not hypotheticals, I think, that apply here for a couple of reasons. I understand. They would apply to anyone who wants to be president in the future based on your definition, wouldn't they? And so when presidents have faced this problem before, they have sought the advice of the Office of Legal Counsel and the Comptroller General as to whether a particular transaction at the margins well, We're asking be your view of it. ask you the question. We I mean, you, you have to answer these questions that we're asking you. Don't defer to the Attorney General. I mean, if you're going to defer to them, they would say dismiss this action. And that would be inconsistent with 100 years of OLC precedent. Well, that's why you should tell us your view. My We're view. We're asking your view. We can read those other documents. Judge said my view is that it covers any profit, gain, or advantage. Whether a question of holding a particular T-bill or a pension at the margins creates a question of an emoluments clause violation is not what we're looking it at wouldn't. here. It wouldn't. No, no, no. We have to understand your theory, though, if we're going to address it. And if you just said, I think I heard you say, my hearing's a little bit off, but... You said any gain of profit. That's what you said. So any gain then that it would cover a Treasury bill then. So I think you need to look at that It would the or lens. wouldn't. Yes or it no, then answer. It would not because there is no discretion involved in that transaction. It is something that— He could that divest himself of the bill. I think when we are looking at the definition of emolument, we are informed by historical practice. That comes from no canning. And I, think I that understand, you... but he comes into office just under this hypothetical to stick with it for a minute. He comes into office and he owns a thousand of these treasury bills. And he had them before he came into office. And while he's in office, he's now receiving interest on those bills from the United States, and... other than his compensation for president. And so that, theoretically, under your theory, violates the emoluments clause. And the answer is he could divest himself. That's what you would say. He would have to sell the bills. 
Is that what your argument is? It is not because under the Reagan OLC opinion, which we think expands on and defines what an emolument is, transactions that are priorly, previously vested or that do not involve discretion do not give rise to emoluments clause violations. But I have to stress what What's we're talking it, uh, about. Uh, I thought the president in this case came into office and he turned over management of the hotel to his family. And all he does, according to the uh, record, is he receives a quarterly report. And he receives the profits that come from foreign and domestic but, governments. But it's and, passive. It's not discretionary. He just, whatever is there, it, it's, it's like the Treasury bill, isn't it? It is not passive because he is out there representing that he would like foreign and domestic governments to come and stay, that he likes them very much when they do. And he's also hired a director of diplomatic sales targeted at getting this business. This is not passive. Doesn't your theory of emoluments, it really is a protection for career politicians who want to be president? Because they don't have generally any business that they've grown that's associated with them. What they have might be career politicians, might be interest and in all that they can put in a blind trust. So for those people, maybe it's not surprising Maryland and D.C. feel this way, the governments, they, they don't have any emolument problem under your theory. But anybody who has grown something successfully or has business interests, they absolutely do have an emolument problem. If they are receiving domestic and foreign government payments well in office, they have an emoluments problem. So they do have That's it. Not... So another, wait, but in the global economy, then if any of their businesses may be getting that, they have to, they would have an emolument problem. So the judge here is limited to the Trump International Hotels. That's no, but the... I'm talking about your theory. Yes, your theory. I, absolutely. You tried, didn't you try to make it broader than that? In your theory, broader than the Trump? Hotel. We are here today based on the Trump International Didn't you Hotel. I asked, yes, you, we had broader you, allegations when, in our complaint. Right, no when doubt. you alleged it, it was, it was broader. So I'm asking about your theory. So any person who has a business that they have grown, they, they have an emoluments clause problem if they are fortunate enough to be elected president. And the founders understood. I'm just saying that this answer, yes, and then you yes, can justify it. Yes, absolutely. Or and do that, you think a career politician who has, who could put all of his passive, you know, stocks and bonds in a blind trust, that would create no emolument problem, correct? I think under the teachings of the OLC and Constitutional, is that correct? Plan, yes. And well, I thought you just said earlier that a blind trust doesn't solve the emoluments clause because he still receives the emolument. Historically, federal officials have been instructed but, to put things in blind trust. We would not choose to bring suit if that's the situation that we were in here. What we have is a president who is a massive global empire who is soliciting foreign and domestic business. Have you given up? Have you given up your theory of reliance on emoluments definition at the time of ratification of the Constitution? Have you abandoned that? Not at all. Profit gain or advantage was the definition at the no, founding. No, no, no. Wait for a second. Today. For the basis of standing, you claim that was an interest. And the district court rejected that interest. You, you know what I'm talking about, that the state of Maryland and Maryland are so much cared about emoluments that they would not have ratified the U.S. Constitution. You, Have you abandoned that? Absolutely. We are not pressing that sovereign interest on appeal. Just wait for a second. Have you abandoned it? It is I not before this court today. We lost on it. We did not appeal Of course it's before this it. court. We can affirm or reverse on any ground advanced to the district court. So, and so the question is, the appeal challenges what the district court did, but we can always rely on other things that you argue below unless you are abandoning them. So Maryland has a sovereign interest, yes. It is Have one you that abandoned that theory? You so, didn't argue it. You didn't argue it in your brief that I could find. 
That's just, I'm asking you that technical question. I don't believe we had to argue it. We lost and we chose not to appeal that. We're here on mandamus of the issues on which we prevail. So I don't actually think it's properly the subject of this appeal. But to the extent the court does think that is before them, it is an argument that we brief below. It is an argument that we stand by. However, the district court So you court haven't abandoned found, it in any way? No, the district court found that our quasi-sovereign... No, I asked you if you abandoned it. And That's I said we have not, Judge You Shedd. have not done so? No, we pressed it. We lost on it. We chose not to appeal. Let me ask you something then. And that, that theory is that people in Maryland care so much about a broad definition of emolument. I hope that if the courts eventually disagree, y'all don't think about seceding, are you? From the union? Well, I confess, I am from the District of Columbia, so I don't think I'd be allowed so to secede. Um, no, but, you know, I don't know. Some people might let you. Um, but, <laughs> the district, but, but I'm just asking, because if you're thinking about that, you're speaking for both sides, we we insist on keeping Judge Niemeyer. That's oh, all I want to make that. Absolutely. And y'all be glad to give him up. Maybe don't say that. I was born and bred in Baltimore. I think you guys should well, have Judge Niemeyer. Well, my point is, and I read in the papers, I didn't know anything about this, but I read in the, in some of these papers that there is at least some claim that President Obama had a book deal that was sold to foreign libraries, and there's some suggestion that maybe those libraries could have been directed by foreign governments. Why didn't you sue, under your theory, President Obama? So I have a few responses to that, Judge Shedd. Yeah. First, whether or not that was an emoluments clause violation requires a lot of facts that we don't know. Whether or not those were sold to foreign libraries. But you could allege. Whether those foreign libraries were. Yeah, but you could allege that, some of what you allege and speculate. And it I'm just very... wondering, if it's so important, why did it? Why wasn't that, that you haven't abandoned that reliance theory, why wasn't that used? Yeah. Do you think Maryland has, or D.C. has a, a standing, would have standing in that case? So I think if we had concrete allegations that President Obama, while president, had violated the emoluments clauses, yes. Yeah, in However, other words, if he, if, conduct, if a, no, wait a second. So if a foreign government had been involved in directing that the books be bought, then he would have an emoluments problem under your theory. He absolutely could. I think that this case is different for two reasons. One, that conduct requires inferences of fact as to what the relationship was between the books, between Obama and his publisher. But that's just a question of facts in the case. And I'm asking about the legal theory, and you answered it. You said yes. Right. That, that could create an emoluments problem for him, too. Absolutely. And whether someone chooses to bring a suit might depend on whether that conduct is at the margins. Every could you other address, time, before I see your time's getting low, <coughs> could you address the government's argument that the president can't be sued for uh, inequity uh, as you're doing that? Yes, and I would say that Armstrong fully covers this. The ability to sue to enjoin unconstitutional action against federal officers is a creation of the courts of equity. If Congress has removed it, then we would not have a cause of action, but unless and until they do so, and they have not done so here, we have equity jurisdiction, this court has equity jurisdiction to entertain a cause of action to enjoin an executive official from violating the Constitution. That comes from cases as far back as, as McNulty, all the way do you have to have a, uh, in order to invoke equity? Do you have to have a cause of action to underline uh, equity? Uh, no, uh, it claim? isn't. We have equity an is equitable. Not, it's not a cause of action. Equity isn't. Equity is a uh, side of the court where you get relief. Right, and I think that Armstrong is actually quite instructive on this. The question in Armstrong was whether or not the supremacy clause gave rise to a cause of action, and what the court said is we don't need to entertain that analysis because it is well established that there is equity jurisdiction to enjoin unconstitutional acts of federal officials. So we don't need a specific cause of action. We don't need something that comes from statute. There is, and there has existed since the Judiciary Act of 1789, equity jurisdiction to enjoin unlawful actions of executives. And now, just to respond to DOJ's point that and because... And the case you're relying on is Armstrong? 
I think that comes from Armstrong, that comes from McNulty, that comes from free enterprise. And there is a long history, even preceding Ex parte Young, where federal officials have been held to uh, conform to the Constitution. No, I, I, think, uh, I think the government is very clear to say a suit against the president. And a suit against the president, I think the NTEU case in the D.C. Circuit speaks to this. It's often the case that there are other subordinate officials that can be sued. But where that is not possible, and here it is not possible because this applies specifically and only to the president, that it would be form over substance to hold that merely because no one else can be sued, the president himself then can't be sued. And so I think NTEU squarely addresses this question. And I think that needs you to be You don't give any, any uh, deference to the fact that the president is the president under our Constitution and, and is the head of the executive branch? Um, no, I think Clinton versus Jones explains that the president, when he takes official action, a court can determine whether or not he's doing so in compliance with the law. And that, the fact that he's a president, you know, it may at the margins affect things like discovery, which I think gets us back to why we're here. You know, he's not entitled to mandamus because he's the president. There's no final judgment exception because he's the president. He is a litigant for purposes of this suit. You know, presidents have been sued over time in equity. And as NTEU explains, where there is not a subordinate official to be sued, the injunction can run against him. This is also not a Mississippi versus Johnson problem because we do not think that we are asking him to undertake any positive duty, which was at issue in Mississippi versus Johnson, nor do we think that this involves discretion. The clauses are a negative duty. Thou shalt not accept emoluments. We are not asking him to commandeer the troops in a particular way or to take any particular affirmative action. We are asking him to abide by the terms of the Constitution. I do see I am over time, yeah. um, so I'm yeah. happy to continue. If No, that's fine. Okay. okay. Thank we would you. ask that the court deny the petition. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I understand. Okay, Mr. Mookman. May it please the court. Uh, so I think that last colloquy is quite instructive. When asked what the authority and equity is to sue the president, she listed a series of cases, none of which involve the president. And what we know from Grupo Mexicano is that the, the precise form of relief that's being sought has to have existed traditionally in equity. Grupo Mexicano, the issue in that case was whether a creditor could sue in injunctive relief to, to us to prevent the dissipation of the debtor's assets. And what the court held was you can do that if but only if you have a judgment against the debtor. That was the traditional form of relief and you couldn't go beyond that without Congress. So too here, yes, there is a long history of equity of suing inferior executive officers. That says literally nothing about whether you could sue the President of the United States. The Supreme Court has made this abundantly clear in both Nixon versus Fitzgerald and Franklin versus Massachusetts. In both of those cases, there was a general cause of action. In Nixon versus Fitzgerald, it's footnote 27 of the opinion. The court says, we are willing to assume that there is a Bivens action here. Well, I understand, I understand uh, your, your colleague to be arguing that uh, uh, there is a cause of action uh, in equity. Uh, forget the defendant, it could be a lower official, when the lower official violates the Constitution. Uh, and uh, uh, that, therefore, the cause of action aspect is satisfied uh, because courts of equity have entertained violations of the Constitution. And so uh, that le would leave the question of who could be the defendant, if she's right about that. Right, and that's my point. You can't just forget the defendant. What both Nixon versus Fitzgerald and Franklin versus Massachusetts squarely held was even assuming there's a general cause of action. In Nixon versus Fitzgerald in footnote 27, it was a Bivens action or an implied damages action. In Franklin versus Massachusetts, it was the APA. Both of those were causes of action, but neither of them expressly covered the president. And what the Supreme Court said was, absent a clear statement 
from Congress, they were not going to extend those causes of action to the President of the United States, given the extreme separation of powers problems presented, because the President is unique. The President has a unique role under our Constitution, under Article 2. He is not just any old inferior officer like the Postmaster General in McNulty or the PCAOB in Free Enterprise Fund. He is in who all Article 2 power is vested. That is why he gets absolute immunity in damages actions, whereas all other inferior officers get only qualified immunity. They can't point to any basis in either case law or history to subject the President of the United States to an official capacity injunctive suit. I've just, on, and that analysis also disposes of the declaratory judgment, which she tried to rely on so heavily. Two points about the declaratory judgment. Well, she, uh, she did fall back on the declaratory judgment, and I sort of take from her argument that's really all they really want. But uh, she is asking for injunctive relief, and... Uh, the injunctive relief, I gather, uh, uh, the only one that seemed to fit the bill would be to have the president divest of all his personal assets. As best as I could tell from that colloquy, Your Honor, I, it certainly, I think, makes clear that one of two things is true. Either it's just not proper relief at all, but or at a minimum, it is the sort of hybrid official individual type relief that has no basis in equity. They can't point to any case that has authorized that type of relief against any officer of the United States, let alone the President of the United States. But if I can make the point about the declaratory judgment, the best that the declaratory judgment action gets them is that there's an express cause of action in general. That just puts them back in Franklin versus Massachusetts world, where there was a cause of action under the APA against any authority of the government. And what the Supreme Court squarely held in Franklin is that they weren't going to construe that to reach the president absent a clear statement given the separation of powers concerns. The DC Circuit in Swan versus Clinton has squarely held that Franklin and Mississippi extended declaratory judgment actions and all of the reasons why the president is unique equally apply to a declaratory judgment as injunctive relief. Uh, and the last point I will make about the unique- So your point is there cannot even be declaratory relief against- There cannot. The to, say, to say that a declaratory declaration that he's, he's violating in his official capacity, there cannot be. That's what the D.C. Circuit held in Swan versus Clinton. Isn't the, isn't the law that uh, the, to in order to um, issue declaratory relief, you cannot issue declaratory relief that's broader than the injunctive relief? That was the second point I was going to make. It's, I think it's slightly different. The point is that you can't bring a declaratory judgment <laughs> action if there was no other form of coercive relief that could be brought. That's, that's right. the Supreme Court's decision in Franchise Tax Board. And since they can't get the injunction, they therefore can't get a declaratory judgment. So both because of the declaratory judgment case law itself, as well as the constitutional significance of cases like Franklin, they can't get a declaratory judgment any more than they can get injunctive relief. Let, let me ask you uh, a question. Um, uh, the district court said that uh, if you accept the president's definition of emolument, that wasn't, wouldn't result in either the termination or streamlining of this litigation. What's your position on that? I think that's incorrect, Your Honor. I think that if you accept our interpretation that if it's profit from officer employee, none of the things that they have alleged meet that definition. We don't think it was meant to cover commercial transactions. At the founding, it was wide. We didn't have a government bureaucracy the way we do now. Again, remember, the Foreign Emoluments Clause is not just covering the president. It's all offices of profit or trust under the United States. It was widespread at the founding that government officials still had private businesses, much like several of the presidents had plantations. 
the idea that any of those private businesses were supposed to somehow exclude anyone from a foreign government. If you were an innkeeper, you would have to say, by the way, before you could stay at my inn, I need to see, are you perchance from a foreign government? That's just outlandish. There's no historical support for that, and there's no historical support for the modern equivalent of it today. For example, the Treasury bill. I frankly do not understand their argument for why a Treasury bill is not covered under their position. There is no doubt that the interest you receive on a Treasury bill is gain from the federal government. The only thing she said is that it's not discretionary. That's not in their definition. You could look at all the dictionary definitions you want. There's nothing in there about discretionary profit or gain. It's profit or gain. Their position is just inconsistent <laughs> with modern practice and historical practice, and because they're adopting a completely, a they're reading the text in isolation, not in context. That's just not how the Supreme Court has said you should interpret the Constitution. If we've cited a couple of cases, for example, Virginia versus Tennessee is the Compacts Clause. The Compacts Clause says any compact or agreement. If you look at a dictionary definition of what agreement means, it would certainly cover an agreement between two states about what the land boundary is. But the court held there, you had to read it in context in light of the purpose. Or, for example, McCulloch versus Maryland, the necessary and proper clause. If you look at a dictionary definition of what necessary means, it's usually going to say indispensable or required. But that's not how the Supreme Court necessary in the context of the necessary and proper clause, in context of the provision as a whole. Here, when you read the emoluments clauses in context and in their historical operation, there's simply no support for the broad definition they've adopted. My final point I would just make is on the mandamus standard, there was no response to the Sewell decision. The Sewell decision says that you can mandamus the denial of a motion to dismiss when the district court erred in allowing a case to proceed that should have been before an administrative agency. The president of the United States is entitled to at least as much respect as an administrative agency. Thank you. All right, thank you. We'll... Uh come down and greet counsel and then uh, proceed right on to the next case, which is the suit, uh, uh, the cause of action against the president in his individual capacity. And in that action, the president's represented by his own counsel, not the Department of Justice. But, all right.